you know, just the unique way that we at Iman approach health holistically, right? We're, we're looking at like, okay, so you live in a violent neighborhood. What are we doing to help reduce the violence on your block? Like how, what are we as an organization? Like we have a, a self-interest in reducing the violence on your block. We have a self-interest in making sure that you have food. You know, it's not just treating, you know, individual issues in silos. It's like, I can't treat your anxiety if I know that you're, you, you can't go to sleep because there's gunshots on your block in the middle of the night. I can't, I can't fix your diabetes if all you can eat is, you know, pantry goods that are like filled with sugar and, and, and carbs. You get what I'm saying? We must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. Welcome to this week's episode of the Soul Force Ones, a podcast about purpose and practice, examining how cash or careers, activism, spirituality, and hip hop rule everything around us. Don't forget to follow us on the socials at Soul Force Ones and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's episode, John and I are joined by medical doctor Sophia Adawi, director of the Health Center for Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago. And the work that they do is absolutely amazing. We chat about the history of Iman, a multifactorial approach to healthcare, the importance of arts and culture in health work, and Dr. Adawi's experiences and lessons as a breast cancer survivor. After the interview, John and I do the remix, where we dig a little deeper and share some of our big takeaways while also making some connections to other episodes. Ready, y'all? Here we go. How are you guys? Good. How are you doing? Good. I feel like we rescheduled this thing probably like 20 times. <laughs> it was worth the wait. Flexibility. Well, I appreciate it. Well, I hope I live up to that statement. We'll see by the end of this. Well, we were, we were trying to be patient so that we can talk to you about your work and your patience. I don't know. I that's it. me. That's me trying to be corny. I love it. No, no, it's okay. I'm married to a man <laughs> whose favorite thing in the world is puns. Very. Oh yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I got you. you puns <laughs> and the dad jokes all day long. You're yes. totally in good company. First question for, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Iman, can you help people understand what it is that you all do? Cause it's a great organization. And then particularly your work in, relation sure. to all of that. Sure. So, um, so Iman is short for Inner City Muslim Action Network. We're located on the south side of Chicago. Um, the mission of Iman is to promote health, wellness, and healing in the inner city. And we do that through several ways, um, organizing for social change, um, through the healing power of the arts, um, through a holistic health center, and then additionally through a reentry program that has multiple components, including job training and housing. And then a little bit about my role at Iman. So I'm the director of the health center and I've been with Iman for about two and a half years. We began, you know, so, so Iman really started in the community organizing realm and out of that, just what became a very apparent express need in the community was healthcare. This was before the affordable care act when even more people than now. Um, I think sometimes we forget because it's been a while and we sort of take for granted what the new baseline has become. But this was a time when so many Americans had no access to healthcare whatsoever. 
and so um, the way that it started with Iman is that it was a volunteer run couple times a month, just doing like health screenings in the community. And you'll hear people tell stories about like pushing this filing cabinet, like up the street to the doctor's office that they were renting and in the snow and the rain. And, you know, that was our, we joke that that was our first mobile health unit. <laughs> it was our little filing cabinet. And so as you can imagine, if you start doing screenings, you start finding things. And then patients didn't really have anywhere to go for what we were finding. And so then it grew from health screenings to a free clinic that was operating a little more um, regularly. And then that, you know, again, just responding to the need of the community that grew. And then before we knew it, we were operating six days a week with both primary care and behavioral health. It's really interesting when you, um, when you look at the origins of the community health center movement, it's very much out of the organizing framework and it's very much out of needs that were expressed by uh, by communities, by people of color and by, um, you know, migrant workers and things like that. And so it just made sense for our health center to become a federally qualified health center shortly after I joined EMAN. So I joined EMAN like right when the clinic became a, a federally qualified health center lookalike, which is actually a separate distinction. And then uh, within a few months after I joined the, the opportunity to apply to become a full FQHC came about. So we did and uh, we were the, actually the only organiza organization in Illinois that year to receive the designation. So that was in, uh, it was on September 11th, actually, of 2019. Um, so it was symbolic in a lot of ways for a Muslim organization during, you know, the Trump administration to get that kind of a designation on 9-11 by the feds. It was, you know, just really powerful. Um, and then, you know, and then COVID hit. <laughs> so um, it was really divine timing that we became an FQHC when we did. Can you tell me more about being a community health organization? Because my sense is that it's a more localized approach that mm -hmm. your philosophy in care is kind of we call a podcast soul force ones that there's this oneness approach that this is a holistic health. It's not just physical health. But I think I heard you talk about how there was a man who, you know, passed by perhaps 10, 11 other hospitals because he wanted to get care from Iman because there's this sense that y'all care about them. Like there's this relationship, right? Can you tell yeah. like that medical practice where it gets beyond just the physical, but kind of that yeah. soulfulness, like we have a relationship as a care provider, as a patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's at the core of what we're about and what we do. Um, it's very common for patients to tell us they've come from, you know, crazy distances. I mean, when we look at the number of zip codes our health center serves, it's over a hundred. And like even Rami himself will say like, I need to verify that number because it just seems so unbelievable. But we've, I mean, every time we run it and every time we look, literally patients come from over a hundred different zip codes to receive care with us. Wow. And even our service area. So your service area is defined as like the top, depending on how you're calculating it, either like 75, 85% of your patients where they come from. And most community health centers, it's typically, you know, some kind of radius around your health center, even that came to when we were applying for this designation with HRSA, it came to like, probably like 15 to 20 zip codes, even just looking at our top 75 to 85% of our patients, um, because there's just this, this driving there are people that even come across state lines to us. And I think, you know, we joke about like, what's our secret sauce? <laughs> I think that 
I think it really comes out of like truly everyone. I can, I, I'm going to speak for the health center, right? Cause that's, that's my role, but I, but truly, I mean, this applies to everybody at Amen, no matter what their role is, but at least my, you know, my team at the health center, what's at the heart of, of why everybody's here is service. Right. And so everything we do is inside that spirit of service, whether it's um, just greeting people with that smile when they come in. Right. It's the it's the um, the way with which we approach every aspect of their interaction from the you know, from before they reach the door, even just on the phone. But from the moment they reach the door to the moment they we do they feel welcome? Do they feel taken care of? Do they feel like we care about them as a person? And not just a number or a patient that's coming right. through this revolving door, right? And so one of the ways we do that is the, the bulk of our patients, I mean, aside from English, we have a lot of Spanish and Arabic speaking patients. And so by design, almost all of our staff are either bilingual or trilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're adding people to our team, that that cultural understanding and that, that for patients to be able to see themselves in the people that are serving them, you know, is something that's really important to us. You know, I, I often say that our, our aim when it comes to caring for patients is that we want them to feel like they're coming into someone's living room and not into a clinic. And um, we know we've done our job when patients describe their experience that way unprompted. Um, so, you know, so we just, we just keep trying to keep that same experience going as we grow. Um, and we, and we're cognizant of that as we grow, that that could start to slip away from us a little bit. And so every opportunity we can, we sort of recalibrate to make sure we can maintain that experience. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, such a big need in our community is, you know, we, we put it under this umbrella of behavioral health, and that means a lot of things to different people. Um, but we try to be really thoughtful about incorporating that into what we do and not not just treating it as sort of separate line of service. You know, one really common example you'll hear at most community health centers is like the concept of warm handoff. So if I, as a primary care doctor, am seeing you and you express that you have a need for therapy, we have a therapist who's available to come and meet with you and chat with you, even as we're scheduling that first appointment. So that when you walk in for that first appointment, you've already met this person, you know who they are. It's not this like cold, um, intro the first time you're showing up for like an assessment or therapy. Right. And that's, I mean, you'll see that in other places too, but I think what we do differently is that we incorporate a lot of the same, like those behavioral health principles, even in a regular medical visit. Like even if you're just coming to talk about like your diabetes or your high blood pressure, um, because the truth is the people that we serve by and large are not only dealing with, uh, with their diabetes or their hypertension, right. They have anxiety, they have depression, they have PTSD. Um, we often joke that PTSD is not just post-traumatic stress, it's present traumatic stress, hmm. right? right? And so, you know, we're, we, even on the medical side, we encounter these things day in and day out. And so we try to make sure that we're just every time we encounter a patient that we're treating them as an entire person. Well, yeah. And the, the interconnection, right. In terms of, we, we talk about our, our oneness, the complexity of our identities, but then the interconnectedness between physical conditions, psychological, right, poverty, um, the the experience, the real experiences of the patients that you're serving. I would offer, Sophia, that your secret sauce 
is at the heart is your heart and soul force. I think what you all do, being that it's rooted in community organizing, in care, in love, to me, that's what Dr. Reverend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said when he, when he said meeting physical force with soul force. It's, it's showing up with compassion and empathy. And to me, the little that I know about your work, Eddie Mann, is that y'all are facilitating spreading love and, and soul force. Definitely. Uh, and, I, and I think as soon as you walk in the door, whether it's of the health center or of any of the other you know, places where you'll encounter our work, you feel it the moment you walk in the door. Truly. I'm, I was a part of the Iman community since its inception. I was in high school when Rami founded Iman. And I love to brag about having been at like the first taking it to the streets festival right. and, you know, participating in, in different, um, different capacities over the years. And, and, and for people who aren't familiar, like that's, that's hip hop. It's the community coming together. Yes. Can you, can you share a little bit about, cause we're about making cash as in community activism, spirituality, soul force, hip hop and healing. And, and my sense is that that you, you all just might want to use that man. acronym. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what y'all are about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the I think what's really, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sure you know about Rami that he's a MacArthur genius. And I and I think part of his genius was identifying this intersection, right? Of spirituality and hip hop and community organizing and the arts and health and you know, just the unique way that we at Iman approach health holistically right? We're, we're looking at like, okay, so you live in a violent neighborhood. What are we doing to help reduce the violence on your block? Like how, what are we as an organization? Like we have a, a self-interest in reducing this violence on your block. We have a self-interest in making sure that you have food. You know, it's not just treating, you know, individual issues in silos. It's like, I can't, I can't, I can't treat your anxiety if I know that you're, you, you can't go to sleep because there's gunshots on your block in the middle of the night. I can't, I can't fix your diabetes if all you can eat is, you know, pantry goods that are like filled with sugar and, and, and carbs, right? I can't, you know what I'm saying? So there's, there's, and I, I've worked in, you know, I've worked in other FQHCs, like my whole career has been in community settings and it's, you know, just what I'm about. Um, but I've, but I've never encountered it approached in the way that our organization approaches it. And I truly feel extremely lucky to be at a place where we're approaching health in this way, you know, cause it feels like we're, at, it feels like we're actually able to chip away at the structural issues that have been, um, truly at the root of why our communities have suffered for so long. So I don't know if I'm answering any of y'all's questions, but <laughs> Just give me up on my soapbox. <laughs> I think you're hitting the nail on the head. And I absolutely love everything that you just said, because you mentioned, right, we're not sort of attacking these issues in our silos, right? And I think something that's something that we've talked about previously. I'm in the field of education. And so often, one way I saw you mention it was sort of taking like a multifactorial approach to healthcare and understanding, like you say, right, just we can't treat anxiety in an isolated way without looking at the context, where you live, what yeah. you're exposed to. A prior guest we had, an educator from Oakland, Jeff Duncan Andrade, talks about education in Oakland and zip codes. And that also, that notion of like presence 
traumatic stress mm -hmm. because students are experiencing this on the way to school, from school. We can't just look at the school. Are you and Iman also working with schools and are there relationships there with, with schools and students? We do have relationships with some local schools. We're, we're working to strengthen those relationships and have them be a little bit more formal. Um, we do we do some, um, our behavioral health team does some groups at a couple of the schools uh, locally. Um, we were in talks with the, there's a school that's actually like just up the block from us that we're in talks to actually have a more formal arrangement where like if their students fall ill or are injured or something while they're at school that, you know, someone could just walk them right up the block to us so that we could care for them. Um, and, you know, the, I, where I used to work, we, one of the places that I you know, had the opportunity to be in was a school-based health center. Um, and so I, I want to try to find a way to bring that same model. Like we may not be inside the walls of the school, but to try to bring that same model where, you know, at the start of the year, parents sign consent and we get all the students registered up front so that there's no barriers throughout the year. If they need anything at all, we're literally just like a short walk away with a, with a, a supervisor. But just to go back to one of the things you said, like about anxiety, right? Like I could throw all the pills at the world, in the world at your anxiety. I had, a, I had a patient years ago. She still sticks with me to this day. This was like maybe a year into, I don't want to keep talking politics, but this was about a year into the Trump administration. And like ICE was like a really big thing at this time. And had this eight-year-old who came, her mom brought her in and she just had like severe anxiety. And, uh, and you know, I was just talking to her like, well, what's going on? Like what changed? It was like a very sort of sudden change in her affect and like her grades and everything. And then, then at some point in the visit, she finally opened up and she said, like, the president's going to take away my parents. Mm -hmm. And so she's living with this fear every day that she's going to go to school and come home and like not see her parents again. I could put her in therapy. I could give her medication. You know, there's there's lots of things at my disposal to kind of blunt maybe what she's experiencing. But what's like, how do you how do you really fix that? How do you get up under the root cause of these issues and not just slap a Band-Aid? you know, metaphorically speaking, onto, onto these things. Yeah, that's what I appreciate. The, the approach of Iman is that it's not the Band-Aid, yeah. um, that you're delving deep into the issues, the systemic issues. Maybe I want to talk about the pandemic. And okay. your, your patients, even more before the pandemic, ex were extre experiencing extreme poverty. Um, Many do not have insurance. The realities of physical, emotional trauma, food insecurity, major financial stress, chronic medical conditions. I heard you say before the pandemic that many of them live with the constant worry that they are one crisis away from losing everything. And it occurs to me that the pandemic was that crisis and they're yeah. still struggling. It was just another thing to throw at people who are already struggling so much how are they doing? How are you doing? How is your staff doing? Like, I feel like y'all are in the, the epicenter, not necessarily of the pandemic, but just of the struggle. Like I think of Chicago, yeah. violence, poverty, like the struggle is real. And yeah. you are at kind of the heart of that serving a population that, you know, the, the idea of the underserved, like, yeah, they've been underserved, historically speaking, their grandparents, their parents, them themselves, how do you serve the underserved? Yeah, I mean, it's been a heck of a year. You know, in, in the recent years, I've tried to move away from the term underserved. And I think more about like under-resourced mm -hmm. and, and like generationally disinvested. 
right? And that's, that's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've started moving more towards that language because I think it better reflects what our community is really dealing with. Um, and, you know, before the pandemic was officially a pandemic, like when there was like rumblings of this coronavirus and people were starting to pay attention and it was actually literally the day the WHO declared it a pandemic. Um, there was a, a news outlet that came to just kind of, talk, you know, see what we were doing to serve the community and like, what are, you know, what were we doing about, um, I don't think we were even using the term COVID yet. And I remember them point blank asking me like, well, what do you think, you know, with the community that you serve, like, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, they're going to be the hardest hit. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was, how could anyone have any doubt in their mind that the same folks who don't have access to healthy food on a good day are suddenly going to fare better than people in other parts of the city, right? There was a study that came out from NYU uh, not too long ago that compared age, uh, life expectancy and within, you know, I forget the number of miles, but it's, it's literally like a short drive in Chicago from the south side up to like the downtown area, right? And when you look at the age um, expectancy gap, it's like 30 years. It's the largest age expectancy gap in the entire country. And so like, how do you, how could you even a little bit think that the people with that shorter life expectancy in any way are gonna fare better in a pandemic? Before you even think about like the economic consequences of it, or you think about, you know, that the, the, the domino effect that just like the health aspect of the pandemic had, right? And then you have job loss and you have all these other issues. But, you know, on top of that, you know, you asked how our staff is doing. Our staff are from the, like a lot of them are from the community, right? And so I won't say a lot, but several of our staff members have lost family members. We have staff members who've lost more than one family member to COVID. And, um, you know, when, when George Floyd was killed and, and there were the uprisings around that and even even like down the street from us, there was quite a bit of violence and, and looting and all sorts of things. And I mean, I can't, I cannot even begin to tell you how proud I am of our team. You know, from the start of the pandemic, we like literally overnight had to incorporate uh, like telehealth. We had never done it before. Literally overnight, we just like rallied and we're like literally driving phones around town to each other's homes and, you know, figuring out how to, how to get patients linked up. We had people in our um, arts and culture department, our organizing department, were like reach going to our seniors and bringing them iPads so that they could stay connected with us and like created all of this program, virtual programming so that, you know, particularly our, um, our constituents who were like in the nursing homes and in places where they were essentially like locked down and like completely isolated that they had at least some way of staying connected. And um, we really early on adopted the, the terminology of physical distancing versus social distancing, right? Like we can stay socially connected even if we're physically apart and like really embodying that throughout this whole thing. But you know, with everything that happened, we didn't suspend services for a single day. Whether it was the shelter in place order, whether it was the uprisings, whether it was, you know, I don't know if you all know what's been happening in Chicago, like overnight one night we got like 15 inches of snow a couple of weeks ago, like you name it, snow, sleet, rain, shine, they've just showed up despite what they've got going on at home, despite like what their own anxieties are around everything that's going on around us right now. 
particularly our team that's been doing all the COVID testing and now doing COVID vaccinations. Like they just, they're such rock stars and I'm so proud of them because we are all human, right? And we all are dealing with just the human reaction to being in this moment in history. And everyone's doing it in such a way where like patients walk in and you would like, they would never even know what our staff is dealing with, you know, because we recognize, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about in our meetings is that in so many other parts of their lives, our patients are not afforded the dignity that they deserve. They're, they, they have to wait like ridiculous times <laughs> for like basic things. They're like, they're treated like their time doesn't matter. They're treated like, you know, they should just be happy with whatever scraps are afforded them. And so we really make it a point to give them a dignified experience um, every time that they engage with us, because we recognize that there are a lot of other areas where they're not getting that same experience, you know? And so part of that is kind of compartmentalizing, if you will, like what we've got going on to make sure that we're bringing that utmost experience to our patients all the time. Yeah. The irony that this is the wordplay again on patients that your patients, those who are experiencing poverty are told over and over again to just remain patient. Just wait. That's like, nah, we need this now. Your family looking like a prison. Your mama at the table crying all her heck on. Feeling fishy, finding chemo, smoking seaweed for calm. These Disney movies too close. You title email, no name. Thank you for your sweet telephone. It saves lives. The secret is I'm actually broken. I tried to raise a healer, kneeling at the edge of the ocean. Somebody, somebody said it saves lives. Who holds my hand at night? I think the glass half full. Who bring me back to Inglewood? I shouldn't bleed this good. Holy conundrum. To hope the bank account wishing bone for my loved ones Tell them no name still don't got no money Tell them no name almost passed out drinking Secret is she really think it saves lives Somebody hit D'Angelo, I think I need him on this one Brothers and sisters, mamas, cousins, uncles Everyone missing somebody, dancing daylight Everything and nothing at all All I am is shoulder for your heart to lean on 
the compassion fatigue the reality that staff work in the community they're suffering just like everyone else but then are also the ones experiencing the pain of so many people as they come into your office and and i guess i want to perhaps bring in or at least ask if it's connected iman it means faith in islam i'm imagining that acronym was very intentional and the significance of of faith of a higher purpose a higher power perhaps in centering the work that you all do for the community. And, and maybe I'm asking organizationally, Iman, in, in the significance of faith, perhaps individually to you as well. So we, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about Iman is although it's a Muslim led organization, um, we're, you know, we're very intentional to not call it a Muslim organization. Right. It's a Muslim-led organization. It's it's based in the spiritual traditions of Islam. But what's really beautiful about our staff is, like, I joke that we're like the United Colors of Benetton. <laughs> I think we have people from every walk of life on our staff. Um, you know, we start most of our meetings off with some sort of reflection as it relates to the work that we do, or potentially like something that's happening, like if we're in a moment in time, you know, if something happens that's of significance. Um, but we, we open almost all of our meetings up with some sort of reflection. Uh, some of the meetings we open them up with just like a check-in. How are you doing? You know, our health center meetings, I, I try to open most of them up with at least a one word check-in where everyone goes around and just says like, where, where are you at? How are you doing? You know, and then we close our meetings out in reflection and in prayer. And one day it's a Muslim prayer and one day it's a prayer from the Christian tradition. And one day it's, you know, a Native American, um, you know, calling to like the, the North and the South, right. The directions. And then it, and, it, and it's so beautiful because it's all so seamless. And, you know, we, we have, we have folks on staff who are agnostic or who are atheist and they'll close in a different kind of reflection and in a different sort of, right. But there's still a spirituality to it, no matter what and I do really believe that that grounds us and it helps us remember why we're doing this and what we're here for um and it, it does it really does carry you through those tough days and you know I don't I don't know I I don't know if we have compassion fatigue like I think I think there's fatigue for sure like we're exhausted but there's clearly something that's still fueling us right and um and hasn't exhausted us to the point of giving up or even slowing down. If anything, we're ramping up with the vaccinations and, you know, there's a different kind of hope that we haven't had in like a year now, you know? Um, 
But I really do think that that faith and that spiritual grounding is is the fuel for us to keep from running completely on empty. I love that. To me, that's just another example of that soul force oneness, like that prayer, like drawing on so many faiths that there's something that connects all of that together, that this isn't evangelicalism and, and trying to convert the masses to Islam. It's sharing the beauty that is at the center of Islam and recognizing how that connects to all of the faiths and prayers and practices that you just mm -hmm. named. Um, how is how is your work inspired or connected by your faith in Islam? I think it goes back to that concept of service. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a, such a strong component of the Muslim tradition to be of service and to contribute to your brothers and sisters of, you know, again, whatever walk of life. And um, there's a saying of the prophet that like even a smile is an act of charity, right? And so even from like a young age, like learning these things, it's just very much, you know, you're just sort of steeped in this idea of, even the smallest act is a contribution to people around you, right? And so like, you know, sometimes I awkwardly smile at strangers because it's just like, I'm not even thinking like, oh, I'm giving charity right now, right? It's like, <laughs> it's just, it's just a part of who I am now to like, because you don't know if that smile actually alleviated something for that person that they might've been going through something and this random stranger who made eye contact with them and saw them, right? And acknowledged them you don't know what the person's dealing with it. that like that could have made their day that could have like lifted them out of some dark space that they were in right and so if something as small as that can be charity then like what better than to dedicate your life to like really alleviating the suffering of of people you know i talked earlier about having been involved with iman in some way from the very beginning um but you know like i truly credit iman so i grew up in a community that was you know, more insulated, right? So like I, I grew up around like predominantly Muslim, predominantly Middle Eastern people. And I, and, and so during this time I was in high school. So I was still very much in that environment at the time. And, and then, you know, here comes Rami with Iman and like streets and, and you got like, <laughs> you got like people of every background and like language and all these things. And, and it just like really like opened up my worldview in a way where like for the first time I could recognize like the plight of like the Latinx immigrant being very much the same as the plight of like my family being Middle Eastern immigrants. And that really there's like no difference between like the language and like the country of origin is really the only difference between us, right? Like we, we are dealing with the same barriers to upward mobility. We're dealing with the same sort of prejudices that come with not looking like you're supposed to look to be American and like all of these things. And so you know, it was it was a very formative exposure for me in the sense that when I went to college, I intentionally studied Spanish and I intentionally knew that I wanted to work with other immigrant communities besides the one that I myself grew up in. Um, and so I take a lot of pride in the fact that I speak Spanish and that like I work in a, in a place where I serve a Latinx community. And actually, my staff tease me because at this point, I'm more comfortable with my medical Spanish than like my medical Arabic. So like the Arabic patients show up and I'm like, does somebody else want to take them? Cause like, I'll just take the Spanish speaking person over here. <laughs> um, like, because truly like it's all, we're all the same, you know? And, and it goes even beyond immigrants, right? Like what you're talking about with that soul force and that oneness, like we're all the same. Well, I love, I love the smile. Cause I, I think of that as a spiritual practice. Like you have practiced okay. that so much that it's ingrained in your being. And I think there's science, right, that the 
the smile, like even I found myself a couple of times when I'm really upset, I'll try to fake myself out of it by smiling. Isn't there like a science to that? But I love just to go back to yeah. the, the, the spreading of love through yeah. the smile that it's so simple that you're not thinking of it. It's just you, you're being you, but the idea of a spiritual practice, whether that's praying yeah. five times a day or smiling, that that is a practice so that when we are in those trying times, we have something to draw on because we've been practicing this. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I never thought of it as a spiritual practice, but that's a really great way to frame it because that's, I mean, that's where it started at least for me, mm -hmm. you know. And it doesn't need translation either, right? That's kind of the special thing about smiling. And as you mentioned that, right, smiling to someone who, you know, that could bring them out of a, a dark space that day. I've had those days, you know, when you're at the store or someone on the street and it's just a couple words and, you know, it changes your day. Definitely yeah. Does. Yeah. And I've read things like that about smiling or laughing, activating parts of your brain that do actually do shift your mood. I mean, there are these like, there's this like laugh doctor who like trains you how to laugh your way out of your, your mood. And, you know, I, I don't think that it'll necessarily like lift our patients out of what they're dealing with, but it could certainly alleviate some of the, you know, take the edge off. It could take the edge off. Right. That's just, that's what we try to do you know, from the moment they walk in, we just, we smile and we greet them and we see them, right? Pausing and not rushing and seeing them and, and making sure that they feel seen. And you mentioned earlier about arts and culture. And I feel like arts and culture are oftentimes things that might not get considered if we think about health and wellness mm -hmm. um, or overlooked. Can you talk a little bit about the work that, that arts have to do with with your mission? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will say that a lot of the art programming that we offer is informed by art therapy. And uh, in general, the work that we do through the arts and culture department is, it's not necessarily just viewed as like arts for the sake of consuming the arts, right? It's, it's arts um, as a vehicle for healing. And so um, you know, for example, in our ceramic studio, um, just the, the, um, the experience of like working with the clay and connecting with the earth through the clay. And then the, like the meditative experience of working the clay and molding the clay. Right. And, uh, and, and, and then eventually like painting and glazing it and, um, that there's, there's therapy in doing that, right. Therapy isn't just talking to someone. There's other ways that you, you can provide a therapeutic space for people, um, you know, and then we do it, we do it through music and we do it through spoken word and um, through the visual arts. And again, all of it is informed from that same place of, of um, even myself, right? Having been around Iman all this time and being on staff and being behind the curtain for a lot of the things that we're planning, like every time I go to an Iman event, it feeds my soul. And it's like, you didn't even know you needed it until you got it. And you're like, oh man, I really needed this. You know, like, it's just, there's something about the arts. Like there's something so universal about, about the arts in whatever form. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter, you know, what your background is. There's something about it that it, like it resonates, right? And, and it allows us to connect with each other um, differently than, you know, traditional methods of communication. So. Yeah, y'all transported me back to like my last email. I can't wait for COVID to be over. 
<laughs> well, see, I was wondering because if you have virtual events, I was I, I don't know if you know yeah. taking back the streets is virtual, but then I could attend, you know, because I'm all the way here yeah. in Oregon. So I was like, Well, I'll there's... make sure I'll make sure that we get you on our list. We do so when COVID started, we did we started something called internet ciphers, internet, mm-hmm. like inside and yeah. then um and so um what we did is we called on, um, so we have, we have like a roster of artists and, and we have what's called our sacred cipher, um, artists. Ooh. So they're like a subset of yeah. artists within the artist roster. And they're, um, each year there's like a, they're like a cohort and they do residencies, um, at Iman, um, for the community, for the staff. We just completed one actually last week. Um, and so what we did is we called on those artists and then we created these inter- internet ciphers where people could join virtually. Mm. And they have been extremely powerful. Um, you know, we uh, we did something similar with our organizing department where, you know, we have we have a weekly uh, gathering called Power Hour, um, which is all about like, you know, getting, getting our um, community leaders involved in like civic engagement and political advocacy and passing of legislation and, you know, just getting them civically engaged and, um, and then sometimes it, it, you know, we'll have health center people there and we'll talk about like cooking healthy meals and, you know, whatever else it's just, it's all about like empowerment, right. And education. Right. Um, and so we, tra- we transition those to virtual as well. So we're still doing those. We're not doing them as you know frequently as we did at the start of the pandemic, but we're still definitely having them. I'll make sure to get you added to the list. So you yeah, can please participate do in those. Yeah. yeah I would love to. Too. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, they're you- really lovely. You mentioned empowerment. I was curious about the empowerment of your patients, because I think oftentimes with a doctor visit, the idea is that you're the expert, right? You you have a doctorate. You're you're a medical practitioner. You're well educated. I am the patient. I don't know anything. That that's the general perception. I think that we're intimidated because we have put you on a pedestal, and I'm just there to get information from you. You tell me, doctor, what I need. What is the role of empowerment? I think of perhaps even the patient, the customer model, as opposed to the the constituent that we are a part of the community. We are here to serve you, but we are all connected. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm going to start by actually sharing a little a little story. So I, it was years into my practice before I realized that patients did that. Hmm. Just a little bit about like me personally, like yeah. my my interest in medicine and the the draw for me to like to become a physician it was always inside of the lens of social justice and so it never even occurred to me until like well into my practice that there was this whole other world of medicine that is like the stuff that people complain about i was always like why do, why do doctors get such a bad rap like we're just trying to help people, right? And <laughs> and then engaging with the medical system, you know, in different capacities and realizing like, oh, okay, this is what people are talking about. Um, but like, I've, I've always approached my patients as the experts when it comes to their health. You're the one living in your body every day. Like I can tell you what I know from school and from experience and what I know scientifically, but medicine is really an art and health and healing is an art. And so, you know, if you tell me that like something's wrong and I examine, you know, I don't find anything. It's not my job to tell you nothing's wrong. It's my job to figure out why you feel like something's wrong. 
and not give up on you until we've gotten to a, you know, a, a conclusion that we mutually are comfortable with, right? And even when it comes to prescribing, to me, it's always been a dialogue. It's been a discussion. It's not like I prescribe this thing to you. And I mean, it's even the word prescription, right? Like I tell you what to do and then you go and do it. And then you come back and report on how you did on your homework. And then I judge you for being a bad patient, for not doing it, right? I mean, that's sort of like the, the standard sort of way that you think about it. But for me, it's never been that way. It's always been, okay, well, here's, here's the recommendation. Tell me. Does that sound like something you can do? Does this sound reasonable? Because if I don't meet you where you're at, there's two options that are gonna happen. One is you're gonna try to do it and then not be successful and then feel like a failure, or you're not gonna even try at all, right? And in either of those scenarios, I risk you not coming back and then losing access to healing. Or coming back and maybe kind of dancing around the truth or like not wanting to tell me that you weren't successful with what our plan was. Um, and then it takes me like several visits to find out like, oh, your blood sugar is still high because you're drinking three liters of soda a day or two liters of soda a day, right? When I thought that we were like at the next step of the plan, but you haven't really managed to kick that habit yet, right? So I could give you the textbook answer of like, cut all that stuff out and see you in a month. Or I could say, do you think you could cut it down to a liter and a half instead of two? Just until the next time you see me, right? And chip away at these things until we like see, because progress is progress. It may not be the full progress, but, but it's still moving in the right direction. And I remember in residency, I had, um, I had a, a teacher who, you know, we had this new diabetic patient and the, uh, the recommendation is for them to check their blood sugars, you know, morning and night, and then two hours after every meal. And she said, I want you to take a, a glucometer home and I want you to do that for a month. And I want you to let me know how that goes. I mean, and when you think about it, like we tell patients to do all of these things and we have no idea what the lived experience of that is like. I mean, checking your blood sugar four times a day is like a part-time job. So realistically, when I have patients who are already taking like two buses, <laughs> each way to get to work and dealing with childcare and standing in line everywhere they go for everything and already like not having access to the best food. I mean, do I really want to add that to them and then have them like feel like failures because they didn't succeed at something that was kind of unrealistic to begin with, right? Or do I dig in my heels and say, well, that's the right way. That's the standard of care. Like go figure it out. Um, so I don't even remember the second part of your question. <laughs> I don't either. But what you said earlier, you said something about feeds my soul. And that made me think mm -hmm. of Lupe, Chicago born rapper. Yeah. And so I immediately thought of food and liquor, but then I mm -hmm. started thinking about hurt me soul. And so I guess I'm thinking systemically, what hurts your soul as it relates oh. to the medical practice? As it relates to medical practice? or your patients, or just those, maybe it's just poverty, like, I don't know. That's a really good question. I really I just wanted to bring Lupe in the mix. <laughs> Shout out to Lou. Um, <laughs> Is he listening? <laughs> maybe. Um, he, I mean, he's been involved with our work in the past. Well, it actually reminded me of our corner store work, but I'll circle back to that. But okay. um, I think 
you know, if I'm being honest, I think in order to do the work we do, we often have to like disconnect from what hurts our souls because, Mm. you know, it took me again, like several years into my practice as a physician before I was able to like get to the end of my day and not be completely exhausted because Mm. I was just like absorbing so much from my patients all day that like, I, like I'd get to the end of my day and like be too exhausted to even do my paperwork. And not that you like cut off and like don't connect with your patients or you don't feel for them, but you do sort of have to disconnect from time to time from those things that hurt your soul because it's sometimes it feels like the only way to do the work, right? And then and then when you have your moments like as a human again and not like as a service, you know, like as a provider, then you you figure out your ways to cope with that hurt in your soul. What hurts my soul is oh, this isn't really as it relates to medicine, but what truly like has just been so heavy on my soul for several years now is um, the children who are separated from their families at the border. And um, just the trauma that like, I guess that's what it is. Cause that's sort of the universal thing when you look at like, all of what motivates my work is um, trauma is at the root of so much suffering, even beyond what we typically think of when we think of trauma. You know, one of the most life-changing things I learned about in my training was this study that came out of Kaiser Permanente um, called the ACES study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, It looks like you're familiar, Jonathan. I am, but you might give a overview or or brief synopsis for anyone who may not be so yeah so just sort of a brief brief description of it so they they studied folks and they they looked at you know um they they created like their list of what they considered to be traumatic experiences in one's childhood and they studied people um who had or hadn't had them and uh and then they looked like as adults how did they fare and when they controlled for age for gender, for sex, for uh, education level, for income, like you name the thing they controlled for it, right? They had higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of hypertension, higher rates of cancer, of substance abuse, mood disorders, like you can go down the list. And what was the most striking was that there was a linear correlation between the number of those experiences you had and your risk for developing these things in adulthood. And that has really been like at the root of everything that drives my work. Because when you look at the list of things that they considered trauma, like traumatic experiences for the people that they studied, it wasn't just the things you think of when you think of trauma. It was like um, incarceration of a parent. It was lack of like not knowing, like, uh, like food insecurity. You know, I mean, it was, it was um, things that you would think of as sort of like unfortunate and unfair, but not necessarily traumatic. And when you think about like what that must mean biologically with regard to like your cortisol levels and, you know, like how, like physiologically, how that's affecting your body. And now that we're learning more and more about epigenetics and how you can inherit these things, like before you're even born. And so now you're looking at like the generational effect of this stuff. And then the fact that this trauma is ongoing and it's still happening, 
So, you know, like sort of like that acute version of it is the children at the border and the trauma that both the children and the parents are experiencing of like that initial separation, but then like the ongoing time that they're separated. But then you think about like our community and you think about the gunshots on the block and you think about running out of food before the end of the month and you think about the ridiculous rates of incarceration in our communities, right? And you think about like, what does it do to an entire generation of people who are the same ones who don't have access to the same resources, who don't have access to the same healthcare or the same, you know, like they can't just like pick a therapist out of a phone book and just like go schedule an appointment to process their stuff, right? And that really, like that really, on the one hand, yes, it hurts my soul, but on the other hand, it's like the, it's like the fuel that for my fire, right? Like that's, that's what has me get up and do what I do every day. Like that is truly the thing that has me get up and do what I do every day is like, how do I turn that around? I love that. Yeah. That, that paradox that it, it hurts my soul. And yet it's also the fuel to the fire. I was initially starting to regret asking that question as you started sharing because it was hurting my soul. And I hope everyone listening, it also hurts their soul because it is related to your work. Because I immediately then started thinking about the story that you just shared of that eight-year-old. That's reality. And I have an eight-year-old daughter. So then I'm thinking about that's her, right? Like that's our children that are experiencing this trauma. We are creating that through our policies. And so I appreciate the work that you and Iman is doing systemically to address those issues on such multiple levels, right? If I could ask one more question, perhaps as it relates to your experience as a breast cancer survivor, and you wrote or said that it's not only made me a better person, but it's absolutely made me a better physician. How? Well, it's made me a better person. I I joke that I was probably insufferable insufferable before cancer. (laughs) I don't think anybody will admit it. But um, it's definitely like softened me and changed my perspective on life in general, right? Like it really does have you zoom out and like recalibrate what's actually important, what actually matters. And more so, I was 31 when I was diagnosed and uh, I had just got, I was like literally had just been married a few months, had only been out of residency like about a year, like my life was just sort of starting and I mean, cancer is awful, but also it was like one of the biggest blessings I could have had in the sense that like at such an early time in my life, I was given the opportunity to like pause and reevaluate who I was being in the world and like how I was being. And, you know, one of the things that um, like early on, I, I just sort of for myself, like, I guess as a coping strategy was like, okay, what are the lessons in this? Right. Like, what is like, why is this happening and what am I supposed to learn? From this. And so everything that happened subsequently, I, I viewed all of it through that lens of like, what is the lesson that I'm supposed to learn? Like if, if, you know, one of, one of the Muslim traditions is that like nothing befalls you except that which God has ordained for you. And, um, and also that um, you may hate something and it's good for you and you may love something and it's bad for you. Right. And so just kind of like that context for the illness for me was like, okay, so if, if God ordained this for me and it may not, you know, it's something I don't love, <laughs> but it may be good for me. Um, okay. What's the good in it for me? And what am I supposed to get from this? And so 
um, one of the big things that for me that came out of it was thinking about like, when I'm gone, whether it's now or however long from now, all that's really left is how I made people feel and what they remember about me. And, um, and so it really had me start to look at like, how am I behaving and how am I treating people? And how are they going to remember me? And, and what, what imprint will I have left when all is said and done? Um, and so, so that I think has made me a better person. I think it's made me a better physician too, in the sense that, um, it's, it's, I've always had that, you know, what we just talked about in terms of like what fuels me and like what drives me. Um, but it's even more so like facing your mortality at such a young age like that really has you like, it just, it fires you up differently. Like there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about, like I'm running out of time to do the work that I'm here to do. And so, you know, it, it, it's definitely been a different kind of motivator to like make that impact. But then the other piece of it is engaging with the medical system as a patient and just experiencing what that whole world is like. And I had the benefit of having medical knowledge and, and knowing how to navigate the system. And as much as you know, my care team always would tell me like, you're one of the only doctors who never sort of like played the doctor card to get preferential treatment but they still gave it to me just by virtue of knowing that I was a doctor. Right. And even then it was challenging. And so to think about patients who didn't have any of that level of access that I had and how even harder it is for them and how even scarier it would be for them. It, it just had me, it, it, it just, it just really changed the way that I did things. You know, I even think about things like paperwork that we complete for patients when it comes to like medical leave. Or, you know, in my case, you know, I wasn't working. And so I had disability insurance and like, I was reliant on my physician to fill that paperwork out so that I could pay my mortgage, right? Like this was not a joke. And it was like, if he, if he just didn't feel like getting to it, I would, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Right. And so just appreciating like things that on the physician side may just occur like, oh, just like another task like some people's lives are hinging on it. And, um, and so, you know, I just, I think I've, I've become, I'd like to think I was always compassionate and understanding and all that stuff. Right. But I certainly think I've become more compassionate. I've become more understanding. I've become more generous in the way that I listen to patients and in the way that I try to help them navigate things. Um, and then like, if a patient's asking for time off, it's probably because they need it. Right. And I think a lot of doctors take this approach of like, I'm not just some like free pass for you to just like, you know, not have to go to work, but like by and large, people want to work <laughs> by and large, people want to be productive members of society. And so if they're not, and maybe it's not because they have an earache, like maybe it's because they've got something going on at home and they're not yet comfortable divulging that. But like, if they're asking for time off, it's worth having the conversation about what's going on and why they need it. And Versus just blanket sort of blowing off of like, you don't need time off. Like you need to suck it up and, you know, go to work. <laughs> so um, it just, it really opened up my eyes to like what it's like to be on the other side of it. Like you were talking about Jonathan of like sort of this, um, maybe powerlessness is like a strong word, but there is this deference that patients have when they come 
to see the doctor. And so if a doctor tells them no, then it's no, right? Patients are not necessarily empowered to push back or to advocate for themselves. Like this, this idea of patients advocating for themselves is a pretty young concept that's like just starting to gain traction in like popular culture. And so it's my job to be that advocate for them. And it's my job to make sure that they know that they, that they can do that. Right. And that they can um, make sure that they get what they need. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for your work, for everything that you you and Iman do. So. Well, you know, every year, well, not, well, yeah, every year for like our Ramadan drive, we have like a theme mm-hmm. and re- in recent times, it's become almost like a theme for the year. Um, and so, you know, last year's, I think very appropriately, the theme was this verse from the Quran that says, you know, verily with, uh, with hardship comes ease. Like that mm-hmm. the two are actually together. Right. Not like the ease comes after the, like the ease comes after the difficulty It's actually if you look, you can find the ease in the difficulty. And, um, and it was a really powerful place to stand while dealing with everything we were dealing with in the past year. Um, and so our theme for this year is actually um, striving for truth and striving for patience. It's another verse from the Quran. Hmm. And, um, and so, you know, you, you were talking earlier about like patience and patience and, uh, and just, you know, thinking about, you know, we, we talked, uh, sort of internally about you know this idea of like the moral arc right it's long but it bends towards justice and there's there's a degree of patience in it but it's not passive patience right right it's a it's a and like get up and do the work and have the patience to know that it will eventually go in the right direction well and that's what everyone misunderstands about gandhi's philosophy of satyagraha and, and king's nonviolence is that it's not passivity no it takes inner strength it's an active push against oppression right there's it's a, you struggle right you you struggle to bend it in the direction um you don't just like sit patiently and wait and i think that's kind of like what the powers that be will hope that will do is just kind of like wait <laughs> for change to come (laughs) and it's like no like we have to it's only going to happen if we push it to happen and come together through organizations Mm -hmm. like iman um Mm -hmm. because we are more powerful together right that's that collective force that really pushes it together yeah i could i mean i could talk to you all all day it's so nice to talk to like my new people (laughs) yeah this has been fantastic this has been absolutely wonderful yeah. Well, if there's anything else that I can do, please let me know. I am um, happy to get you added to our um, our mailing list. That'd be great. Yeah. And um, our directors are a group of like just they're just badasses, oh, and yeah, everyone yeah. like in their own right. And because like each one of us does it through like our particular lens, right? Right. You would have like a completely different conversation about the exact same work that's yeah, happening. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I feel. I mean, um, I feel like you, you're. You, we already named like y'all are making cash, that cash <laughs> meeting. Like I think there's there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, but if yeah. you could, um, yeah, let's stay in touch. Definitely, definitely, tell Rami about us. We'd love I to will. have Rami on. Um, but yes to everything. Like any suggestions that you have, whether it's people that you work directly with, Iman, or anyone in mm-hmm. the community that you all support, um, yeah. that you think would be great. 
um, yeah. that would be fantastic. Why? Well, and I love, I love this, this podcast too. And in, in like the, the perspective you're taking like soul and hip hop and yeah. well, thank it's, you. it's super cool. It's thank super you. cool. What's the image behind yeah. you? That's my last question. Oh, um, so I'm a huge, I'm a huge like street art fan. So um, this is a piece by a Chicago artist by the name of Hebrew Brantley. Okay. He, um, he's actually like now like internationally known, but back in the day when he was like a local artist, my husband used to manage him. And, oh, no. Okay. Like we, like we know him. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's just really nice to have a piece of him in our home. But yeah. yeah, like, I mean, like I'm wearing like another Chicago artist. Like I just, that's like, we could have like a whole nother hour where I just like go on and on about street art. <laughs> Chicago love arts are, are everywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, I, are you all familiar with Art Basel? No. So it's this once a year festival that happens in Miami. Well, it happens in, in Basel too, like in Switzerland, but they, they do one in Miami in, in the first week of December every year. Um, and it's really, it's really amazing. So like over on South Beach, they do all like the really high brow art and like the convention center, right? And it's all the like really like shishi art. But then you go out into Wynwood and, <clears throat> and that's um, where like all the like living artists and like the street art is happening. And so it's like a, like it's turned into now like a week long production where like there's just events all day and night. And there's like every gallery has is showing art and like even spaces that are not galleries are pop-up galleries and like art geeks from all over the world would kind of like converge on Miami for a week. And you just feel like you're in this like utopia of like art lovers where everybody just loves each other because we all love art. Um, and so I went for the first time, like right after I had finished chemo and it was like one of those things that just like so fed my soul that my husband and I promised that ourselves that we would go like that would be like our annual tradition and then we had children <laughs> and then COVID yeah, hit and kids. so we're like someday someday <laughs> we'll make it back there but you know um it's one of those like um little known sort of like if you're into street art it's it's one of those places where you can really discover up-and-coming artists like there's there's pieces that we bought there for like next to nothing those same artists are selling pieces for like thousands of dollars now because they're just they're like becoming more known and and their art is you know more appreciated than it was before that's one of the things i'm, I'm from the bay and that's one of the things i miss i'm now in oregon and it's very mm -hmm. clean here is and, it right you don't get street art you don't see oh, any of that right we don't have the me. urban that's the thing that's really sucks about oregon is you don't get are you in portland no we're in corvallis which is even oh. less gritty um, okay. you know, there, there's probably street art in Portland. You get that, but yeah, outside okay. not much here. There's not an appreciation for, for urban art, uh, right? Yeah. You don't have an appreciation for hip hop or street yeah. art or just hip hop culture in general. Like you just don't see it here because you're in yeah. Corvallis, you're in Oregon. Um, yeah, yeah I miss I, that. So one of my, like, one of my early conversations with Hebrew, he was actually, he was painting a mural in my husband's office at the time. And um, he was doing this stuff where he was like, scratching things out and like doing all these like weird things that look to me as something that you would paint over hmm. but they were intentionally a part of his pieces and so I remember yeah. like because I've been a fan of his from like day one right and so I remember just kind of like hanging out watching him paint like hey 
like what's up with that yeah and so he was actually the one who introduced me to Basquiat mm. and told me how Basquiat was this huge influence in his work and um you know I will say Basquiat for me personally was has become sort of like an acquired taste like for a long time I just really didn't get it but I finally have like come to a place where I really appreciate that he was sort of like that bridge between like the graffiti culture and high highbrow art and um and that was his genius right mm -hmm. that he was able to bridge that gap um and so I think it's just I think it's really cool to see all the ways in which those gaps are getting bridged in different areas right whether it's like hip-hop and spirituality or you know in our case hip-hop and spirituality and like health right and um and you know um we didn't get to this while we were talking but uh, there's, have you all seen that movie, um, Judas and the Black Messiah? Not yet. Totally watch it. Yeah. Um, but it was, it's really resonated with us at Iman because it's like, it's basically what we're doing. <laughs> when you look at the Black Panther movement and everything they're doing, it's like, and it was re it's really powerful to, um, to see that we're following in such huge footsteps, like in our own way. Um, but yeah, that there's like, all this stuff is there. And if we could just kind of like bridge those gaps to each other, it's just so powerful. Anyway, I should really let you all go. <laughs> yeah, we probably need to let you go. Yeah. Thank you so much again. This has yes. been absolutely wonderful. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you so much. Okay. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care, Sophie. Bye-bye. Yeah, I shoot the gift on the radio station. 88.5. HBK was the only station that would fuck around. 88.5. Chicago. On the radio station. Taking a train. Taking a train. Taking a train. Taking a train. The red line is the thin spot I rolled on the back of a city overgrown and overtaxed. The wax hands of the rich pick a thin pockets bare and scatter. The skeletons of cultures with the rent control pattering feet of prostitutes and penny brown children trace glass glaze sweet for someone to pay or to listen. I glisten like the question in a shorty's eyes sleeping in the train car at the Lawrence stop when I get in making pillows out of bare arms while I'm posturing poems. But I can't name these eyes or the idea of less than home. Home the unfinished shit that fate hasn't sown in the skirt of an evening over morning's waist blown. I see the moon, I see the go going by on stilts as mouths wilt and turn blind into girls' eyes. Fate's hands have holes, we hold hope by the collar. Color red, the closed eyes shut tight on a dollar. Rails rock heads to sleep. My eyes peel all the way to memorize a sleeping girl's fate and begin to PK. Oh, shit, I'm late, I got a bus to make to take the 35th and stay. Get on a damn Ryan Red Lion ahead downtown with head down. Experience life and surround sound. Rhythmatic speech occurs when a crowd's around. Besides, I'm still waiting on the train. Plus, I'm late already. And how the fuck am I gonna get so Sophia. Yeah, Sophia's dope. She's definitely one of those soul force ones. And and I enjoyed making cash with her. Like there's so much alignment. And we talked about this during the podcast between Iman and them making cash and yeah. our acronym of cash. And we added another A, right? Because there's activism and authenticity. And then there's art, which I hadn't considered. So yeah. that was kind of cool. Surprising that we didn't get to that earlier. Yeah. Took like episode 26 before we figured out that art is one of the A's as well. But yeah, so Sophia um, being one of those soul force ones, it was a really fun 
conversation. Um, I just really appreciate her and what Iman is doing and just their approach to healthcare and, and holistic health and the oneness, the, the body, spirit, right? I'm thinking of that conversation with, with Rima um, and, and she said, every time we encounter a patient that we're treating them as an entire person. To me, that's the soul force ones. That's the whole person. And recognizing the truth of their patient's experience and not belittling them, speaking down to them. Uh, but that's her practice. And, and the idea, we got into it in terms of the spiritual practice of smiling. And there was something else that was a part of it that really resonated with me. But I think it's just the, just the way that they approach their work. Oh, it was the prayer and the reflection that they opened their meeting up with. And just how there's this spirit of service. I appreciate that focus on holistic care and seeing more of people, more in people and more of people. I hadn't been aware beforehand of this one health approach, which I think is interesting, right? With the soul force ones, the one health approach, sort of like collaborative, um, multiple disciplines working together to address people in their needs. And if we think of health, we kind of bring it up a bit with education as well. We have to understand multiple factors. And I think that's something that they do so well they bring together folks from a lot of different areas. And what blew my mind was talking about how Iman serves people from over a hundred zip codes. So the reach of their work and how many people they're able to support and help and how doing something like that is so revolutionary that folks will make space for it and seek it out despite something maybe being closer because it's needed what they provide. And so I really appreciate addressing multiple factors. We can't talk about health unless we're talking about the effects of capitalism. We can't talk about health if we're not looking at climate change, pollution, racism, sexism, all of these, right, transphobia, all of these different things affect people and their access and the quality of care that they get or don't get. And so the work that they're doing is, it's groundbreaking, right? It's, I mean, on the one hand, it's revolutionary. On the other hand, it's, it's very common sense. Like why, why isn't this what our system looks like in the first place? You know, I mean, we know why, but <laughs> yeah she had said that i can't treat your anxiety if i know that you can't go to sleep because there's gunshots on your block so the, the intersectionality of trauma just like how we talk about intersectional identity um how all of those variables are connected and remix time with the connections right it goes back to jeff duncan andrade and his work in education as well like we can't teach math if you know our students lost a best friend or a cousin this weekend right We're yeah not and i think over the interview you said 
attacking these issues in our silos. I think something that's something that we've talked about previously in the field of education. But yeah, I guess what I'm saying is the, the silos that you're speaking of, that we have to approach it in that holistic manner, that everything is interconnected, as we often say on the Soul Force Ones, and, uh, and approach it as such. And oftentimes, I think within healthcare, there's a tendency of ignoring spiritual care and how that is very much front and center. And it's not as if you have to be Muslim to walk in and be served by Iman. It's just a recognition that whether you're Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, whatever, that that identity is very likely something that's important to you. And so I just love how they open up their meetings with kind of this ecumenical worldview where it's inclusive of everyone's faith and how centering themselves in their spiritual identity and through reflection and contemplation and prayer helps them, particularly their staff who personally and or professionally, right? When you're working in a health center and you're seeing so much suffering allows you the resources and tools to navigate that pain. And just the complexity, the paradox, as we mentioned during the podcast of feeling someone else's pain, where we're feeling that pain could be debilitating. It's almost like a give and go, right? I have to feel that pain. I got to empathize with you, but at some point I can't internalize your pain. I have to empathize with it, but I got to, I got to let it go. Um, so, so that idea of the, of the give and go. Um, but I think oftentimes we just don't allow ourselves to even empathize and feel someone else's pain. And, and that's what I love about Sophia and her work with Iman is the, the need, the, the intentional effort to connect with their patients, right? The cultivation, of, and it's very intentional. It's very thoughtful in terms of how they go about that. And there's a level of humility as well that I think she mentions and that's needed because empathizing with folks, there's also a level of recognition in many cases where I'm not going to be able to know what you're experiencing. And so there's that understanding that these people are experts in their experiences and what they're feeling. And I, as a doctor, can't assume that I know what you're going through or what you're experiencing. I have to listen to you. And there's a level there of humility in terms of sort of not assuming that you're always the expert in listening and allowing other folks to have that space and honor and acknowledge and leverage their voice and their experiences instead of just sort of talking at people or assuming that, well, I know what's best for you and understanding where people are at and what is, what is achievable depending on the person's case, not just saying, you know, cut out all sugars tomorrow because then it might not be achievable and then folks are going to start lying to their doctors or they're going to feel guilty for not being able to achieve it because those goals in the first place weren't necessarily realistic. But overall, I was very inspired and hopeful. It's nice to see the work that they're doing, how they've grown, how they also incorporate the arts, how they have culture as an aspect um, or a, a branch of the work that they do, how important that is. And knowing that folks are out there doing that work 
grassroots, ground up, community centered, makes me hopeful. You know, nationally, globally, we need these big changes, large scale. But in the meantime, right, the real change is going to come from what we're doing locally. And what they've been able to achieve is, is very impressive. Yeah, if we could scale the smiles and the dismantling of systems the way that Iman is doing it. So the smiles and the systems. Yeah, and it's funny, right? Like smiles, little gestures, acknowledging someone's humanity goes a long way. And then at the same time, right, the material resources that folks have access to, there's so many different levels of care and and work that we can do well that's the thing the smile is often characterized as a small thing and for all intents and purposes it's a small thing it's so easy to smile right um but it's what it is symbolic of it's it's the same way that in education right they talk about i think there was a study you probably are familiar with it where there was a correlation between having books in the home and so they gave a bunch of kids a bunch of books, expecting that that would increase their performance in schools. And it's not that having access to books itself is the variable. It's everything that is tied to those books, oftentimes, in terms of the resources that you have access to. Um, And so I think of it in the same way that, yes, it's the smiles, but it's everything that goes behind that smile the intentionality of it, um, the practice. And not stopping there, right? Not simply smiling and going, okay. My work's done. (laughs) (laughs) That's all Yvonne does, right? We just spread smiles. You just come in and you get a smile. No, it's obviously so much, so much more than that. And I I think it's the practice of patience. The, the, The paradox there in terms of patience where Sophia mentions how we greet them and we see them and, and we're, we're pausing, we're not rushing. It's, it's not a matter of getting you out the door so we can get to our next patient um, and kind of this production line. It's spending time cultivating a relationship. And so taking patience with your patient as opposed to that idea that these individuals, many of whom are under-resourced, are told to wait in line. Their time is not valued. They, as individuals, are not valued, right? It's, it's a matter of valuing. Like, they, they value their patients, the, the members of their community that they serve. They are a part of those communities, right? So that idea that I am we, we, your pain is my pain. Like, there's, there's that tremendous level of, of empathy, of, of humility. I love their story, their, their origin story of sorts, like their humble beginnings, right, of, of pushing the filing Camden, right? Uh, just even as an organization, kind of having experienced the struggle, uh, metaphorically speaking, and, and, and yeah. growing and, and being born from community organizing, right? Uh, I think that was really cool. Yeah, I agree. And, and, pushing back against some of that power, the way that we know it, power and authority and expertise, kind of flipping that on its head and being more humble, 
hearing folks creating space and time, sitting with folks is, it's a big shift. Sometimes it's not always a huge shift, but, but you know, some of those quote unquote smaller gestures or actions can absolutely make a world of difference, no doubt. And that does it for this week's episode of the Soul Force Ones. Thank you so, so much to Dr. Sophia Adawi for joining us this week. You can find out more about her work by following the links in the episode notes. Songs featured this week were Chicago's own No Name with Don't Forget About Me and Typical Cat's Thin Red Line. Check the episode notes to support their work. And as always, thank you to OJ the Producer for our theme song. You can hear more of his music at ojtheproducer.com. Make sure to join us for new episodes dropping every week. Follow, subscribe, and until next time, peace.